gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Everything seems to get said twice here in the opening verses of Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather, yes, gather, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Surely, again, those are two ways of saying the same thing, aren't they? Gather, gather, before, before. Before the day of the Lord comes is what this is about. That's what we've been warned about all through chapter 1. And and as if we need reminding of the nature of that day, we get this bit twice too. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. There's an emphasis here in the repetition of all these things. Gather, gather, before, before, the anger, the anger. If you remember the historical context from the past couple of weeks, this was written in about 630 BC to ancient Judah the last remaining part of the nation Israel, who God had rescued out of slavery in Egypt and and led into the promised land. And now, after 800-ish years of repeatedly neglecting God and and worshipping false gods, they are facing a catastrophic judgment. And well, we may ask, I think, as we turn into chapter 2 of Zephaniah now, what help will gathering do? I mean, in light of the all-consuming fire of God's judgment that's coming, what help will it do to gather? Flashback just one verse to to the last verse of chapter 1 that we looked at last week. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So what help then will gathering be? Wouldn't that just make the fire burn stronger? Wouldn't we be better off to flee? To make this even more intriguing, the, the, the Hebrew verb underneath here for gather is, is from a word root for straw. This particular gathering verb is not the verb you'd, you'd normally use to refer to gathering people, but, but rather for gathering up hay or sticks or straw, which lines up then with the chaff language of, of verse 2. So across the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, we've got this warning about this all-consuming fire that's coming and then language depicting people as straw and an instruction in the middle of all this to gather. It rather reminds me of John the Baptist's words that we looked at in Matthew chapter 3 just a few months ago, if you recall, where speaking of Jesus, John had warned people in his day in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A judgment is coming for these people in ancient Judah too, back in Zephaniah's day, as we've realised these past couple of weeks in chapter 1 of his message. And yet we're now going to start seeing a window of hope opening in chapter 2, starting with that gather verb in verse 1. Chapter 1 was like step 1 as to how the people can survive this judgment. Basically, step 1 was that they acknowledge their sin. Now, chapter 2 gives us step 2. Gather, before, 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 and seek 
Verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So too, we should now ask why why these people in verse 3, the, the, the humble of the land who do God's commands, why they should seek. Uh, who even are these humble people who do God's commands? Chapter 1 made it clear that, that everyone deserves judgment. So I'm not sure that three verses into chapter 2, there's, there's suddenly a subgroup of people who, who have actually been humble and who have been obeying God's commands all this time. Rather, I think this verse serves as a challenge to people, a call to the people. You know, If there is anyone out there who wants to survive this judgment that everyone deserves, then, then now they must come humbly before God and obey his word. The call then to seek the Lord and to seek humility and to seek righteousness seems to, seems to confirm that they aren't exactly humble or righteous to begin with. At any rate, by humble of the land, God is declaring their insufficiency. Just as the silver and gold of the people won't save them, as we read in chapter 1 last week, so too the, there is nothing in the hands of these people that they can bring. They, they must come before God in humility. That is, in total need. That's exactly, though, how he wants them. He says here, if they will not gather together as such, then they will not receive mercy. From that humble position of need, they can now seek Verse 3, they can seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and seek humility. The call on Judah in these opening verses is to repent. Gather before him, seek the Lord, seek his righteousness, seek humility. These are all part of what repentance is about. They've been asked to turn from their sin and turn to God. And that's what repentance literally means, turning to God. And that's the call here in verses 1 to 3. Repent. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps. Perhaps you may be kept safe in the judgment. Maybe a window of hope will open up. The text here at this point wants to keep reminding them of their desperate need. But does this speak to any kind of uncertainty, we might ask, in in terms of God, you know, as to whether or not he will open up a window of hope for these people? No, I think this is just part of the the slow revelation of hope that that builds in Zephaniah and is going to keep building and and come through by chapter 3. Up to this point, they've had no hope. They've been given nothing This first sniff in verse 3 is, I think, meant to lift their spirits, to to wake them up and get them ready for what's still coming later in the prophecy. Meanwhile, verse 4 brings us back into the wider context of of the whole Bible story, a series of pronouncements on all the nations surrounding Judah. Last week in chapter 1, the emphasis was on Judah itself. This week, the nations around them that have played various parts in the Bible story up to this point in time, and fittingly, I think, for, for a book with such universal overtones to this judgment, these 
these other nations in this next section fall on the four points of the compass from, from Judah's point of view. Verses 4 through 7, first of all, speak of Philistia, the seacoast nation to the west of Judah. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. These are the four remaining stronghold cities of Philistia. The one note I think we might catch today is is the one about how swift this judgment will be when it comes. As Zephaniah speaks these words from God, the Egyptian ruler Semeticus I had been involved in a 29-year-long siege of the city of Ashdod from 640 to 611 BC. But when God finally brings judgment, it will be swift, all done and dusted by lunchtime. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Kerithites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. No sin is specified here for the Philistines, but historically this nation has been opposed to God's people. And long, long ago, God had counted their land as Canaanite land, marked for judgment and for handing over to Israel through his promise to Isaac way back in Genesis 13, but it had been unconquered by Israel when they did enter the land. The Philistines should no longer take any comfort in that fact that Israel didn't fully carry out the judgment upon them, because God's judgment is now ready. Woe to the seacoast nation. Twenty or thirty years after this oracle through Zephaniah, the Philistines disappeared from the page of history. God stirred up Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon to carry out this judgment fully and finally in 605 BC. In verse 8, the warning flows to the east of Judah, to the nations of Moab and Ammon, and the sins of these twin nations are made clearer in the text for us in in verse 8 and, and then in verse 10. God says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, he says in verse 10, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. These two nations have long despised God's people of Israel, and they have taunted them and boasted against them and despised them and made plans for their land and so on and so on. But their pride will be punished, God says in verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. There is quite a deliberate association in the words of this judgment. Do you know the story of the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19? God would have spared the wicked city Sodom if even ten righteous people were found there. But ten people weren't found there. Lot and his two daughters found grace and were saved. But in the very next scripture... Even these three people were found in sin, in incest of all things. Moab and Ammon were the sons of two incestuous unions between Lot and each of his two daughters. 
Fast forward to the time of Zephaniah and, and the punishment now for the nations that have arisen of Moab and Ammon that sprang from those incestuous unions. For the pride of these twin nations and their opposition and hostility towards God and his people, they will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah were. Moab was also destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II in 582 BC, and the Moabites are no more. Ammon survived that complete annihilation, but but not as a functional nation. They became a province of Babylon, and Babylon became Persia, and Persia became Greece, and eventually Judas Maccabeus from Judah conquered the Ammonites. Verse 11 interrupts the journey around the compass points and clarifies that it's it's not just that these surrounding nations around Judah had opposed God and his people or, or were variously sinful, but, but that they had dishonored God with their idolatry. Verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. This is the fire of his jealousy we were looking at in chapter 1 and verse 18 last week. The fire of his jealousy that will destroy all worship of all other gods. The compass then points south, verse 12. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Cush is the old name for the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia. However, until uh, 663 BC, just you know, 30 years or so before the time of Zephaniah's prophecy, Cush had been in control of Egypt. And maybe verse 12 is referring to Egypt, I guess, as a synonym there, and the history that Israel had with that nation of Egypt. But so too, it may just be referring to Cush proper, just as it says there in the plain reading of the text, because for quite some time they had been a very dominant kingdom in the south. There's no reasoning given here, other than that interlude, of course, in verse 11, about all the false worship all across the world. As much as anything, this might just be speaking to direction and, and sheer distance. The day is coming even for the very far south. Evidently, about 30 or so years after Zephaniah's warning in 600 BC, an Egyptian army rose up and destroyed the Cushite stronghold capital, Napata, and the survivors of that kingdom had to flee and and try to re-establish further south. Then the warning heads north, to the wall of Assyria, who had been the major world superpower for a while and and had executed God's parallel judgment on the northern tribes of Israel about a hundred years before this warning through Zephaniah. But don't make the mistake that because God opened up their path of conquest over Israel that that Assyria are in any way righteous or or, or above this judgment. No, No, they too must face the day of the Lord. Verse 13, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. 
It's much the same outcome as the start of this section where the Philistine cities and then the whole Philistine nation would be made desolate and, and left for the animals to enjoy. Such will be for the nation of Assyria too. And to, to close off this section about these surrounding nations from verse 4 through 15, another way of capturing godless pride. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. Nineveh thinks they are God. The shake-up that they had received about a hundred years earlier, when, when they'd repented and called upon the name of Yahweh at the preaching of Jonah, all that seems to have worn off. Judgment is coming for you too, O Nineveh. Zephaniah has seen it. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. The magnificent capital, and famous for its irrigation, by the way, will, will be turned into a desert, a dry wasteland, verse 13. Just a decade or so after this warning through Zephaniah, Nabopolassar of Babylon, with, with the support of the, the Persians and the Scythians and the Medes, conquered Assyria, and they destroyed the great city of Nineveh, in 612 BC. The focus has shifted, therefore, in in chapter 2, in the specific judgments pronounced, uh, which were towards Judah in chapter 1, and now to the other nations, chapter 2. Both judgments are comprehensive in their scope, and so they reinforce the universal declarations that fall, fall in between them. The day of the Lord is coming for everyone. Of course, while the nations of chapter 2 might seem pretty localised to one part of the world from our perspective, from Judah's perspective, these nations to the north, south, east and west represent the rest of the world. And so whether we're thinking about the general warning at the end of chapter 1, for example, or, or, or the nations specifically listed here in chapter 2, I mean, the whole picture being painted for Judah in this prophecy is of universal judgment. And Judah will be judged just like the pagan nations around them. And Judah and all these pagan nations were judged in just the decades following this warning. And yet in amongst that judgment, here in chapter 2, we get little glimpses of this window of hope for Judah. In verse 7, we see the beautiful concept of a remnant being introduced. Verse 7 again, the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Or verse 9, therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the remnant of my people shall plunder Moab and Ammon, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. There is a remnant. There are to be survivors. This is very exciting stuff after the devastating ground that we've covered in this prophecy. Even, even birds and beasts are mentioned in verse 6 and verse 14, carrying hope all the way back to the start of this prophecy in chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. And a remnant, of course, of God's people. 
And yet that remnant is presumably to be saved out of a universal judgment that should fall on everyone. Despite the universal declaration of sin and necessary judgment, God is going to open a window of hope for salvation. There will be a remnant. There will be survivors from all this, and and, and not because of what they have done, but because of God's unfathomable mercy in the midst of this judgment. A remnant. Survivors. I noticed through chapter 2, and maybe you noticed it too, that the recurring theme of pride in the nation, spelled out in various ways, but pride. And in stark contrast to that, the call of God at the beginning for us to be humbled should we wish to survive in that remnant. Pride and humility are opposites. It's interesting to see those opposites pitched against each other here in Zephaniah 2. It's interesting too to think that the world has taken that word pride and picked it up and applied it as a positive thing, the very thing that humans should pursue and embrace. Pride. God calls us to be humble. All that God asks of people in this passage is that they gather and seek. In other words, he wants us to turn to him, to come to him because we have nothing. Or in other words, he wants us to simply and humbly repent. Chapter 1 called us to acknowledge our bankruptcy, where we stand in this matter of sin and judgment, and and now chapter 2 calls us to repent. And this is still true of what God wants. If we think about this passage through our our ultimate lens of reading Scripture, the, the Jesus filter, Jesus also called us to repent. We looked at this not long ago in our series in Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or how about this one in Luke 13, just just so that we catch the universal scope of all of this repentance that we so often like to skip over for our comfort. In Luke 13, listen to Jesus, uh, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were were worse sinners than, than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus came to preach repentance to all who would be saved from judgment. So all of this in Zephaniah still very much applies to us now. We all must 
repent. At the same time, we can't possibly then somehow interpret our repentance as if it's some kind of righteous act that we we do and, and can credit to our account as if we have got something to bring to this. No, no. On the contrary, repentance itself is is a confession. It, it's a concession that we have nothing, that it is only God who saves us from what we deserve. Repentance is underpinned by a complete humility, as spelt out here in verse 2, and in the whole two chapters so far, a recognition that we are inherently deserving of judgment. We must come in humility. And our repentance is is overlaid by a trust in God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his provision, which is coming up in chapter 3. A trust in his promise to save us. A trust in his mercy. A trust that then flows naturally into our desire to follow him, to, to seek after his ways and obey his commands, as this scripture says. Fear not, the window of hope is going to be opened wide in next week's passage. And and hopefully there's enough here in this first sniff in chapter 2 for you to to sense that coming. God is good. And he has promised a way through this judgment that we do deserve. Let me encourage you, if, you if you, if you're feeling the weight and the conviction of your sin from this difficult journey through Zephaniah and you're, you're, you're struggling in, in the distress of this judgment and worried about whether you know this, this simple, humble, repentant stuff is going to cut it, let me put your mind at ease. Let me show you a bit of what God is like when it comes to this repentance and salvation thing. Let me give you an abbreviated story of, of King Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of King Amon, mentioned back in chapter 1 and verse 1. He was King Josiah's grandfather, a couple of jumps back before this book of Zephaniah. And and King Manasseh brought the nation of Judah spiritually to an all-time low. Here's a snippet to give you an idea about King Manasseh and the way he led the country in 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Ashtaroth, he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Pretty disastrous stuff from King Manasseh. 
2 Kings 24 tells us that it was because of Manasseh's sin in all that that God actually sent the Syrians and the Moabites and the Ammonites and eventually the Babylonians to to attack Jerusalem to carry out the near implication of this judgment of Judah that Zephaniah is now proclaiming. I don't think we can put too high a measure on, on the scope of Manasseh's sin. All this judgment on Judah from Zephaniah chapter 1 finds its way back to him. But listen again to Manasseh's personal story in 2 Chronicles and this next bit about God. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, Yahweh, was God. God spoke to Manasseh, but in his pride, in the heights of his sin, he would not listen. But when he was then in distress under discipline, Manasseh humbled himself and turned to God. He entreated the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Thoroughly wicked Manasseh turned to God in repentance. And God had mercy on him. So too, a couple of generations later, with the whole nation of Judah that is about to be exiled as Zephaniah speaks these warnings. They deserve judgment too, but God will be merciful to those who repent. They will come in humility before him and he will have mercy on them and restore them. So too it is, my friends, with you and with me. None of us are righteous, not even one of us. But God is merciful, and in his mercy he provides a way for us to be saved. The judgment still comes. It has to come. The literal and and near implications of these warnings on those ancient nations, they were just like little pictures warning us of the greater cosmic judgment of sin that is still coming for everyone. But the window has been opened for us to escape. And the Jesus filter of of reading scripture teaches us how, how God can do this. You know, how he can be so merciful to sinners like us and yet still be so just against sin. He takes the judgment of our sin on himself. This Jesus who who did this for us, God the Son in human form who came to do this for us, he, he calls you and I to the same thing that he called ancient Judah to through the prophet Zephaniah. Turn 
to him. Gather humbly and seek the Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If you haven't yet done that, you know, humbly repented before God, can I urge you to, to, to wrestle deeply and thoroughly with this gospel according to Zephaniah? Read Zephaniah and, and feel the conviction of your sin. Accept that judgment must come. But then come in, in humility before God and seek his salvation. Why should it not be this word of God through Zephaniah that brings you to repentance and faith? Wrestle with this word of God and, and then step humbly into salvation. And if you have already done so, then, then can I encourage you to sit tight. Sit tight for the glorious assurance of our salvation that, that's coming for everyone who humbly does come to God like so and that's coming up for us in Zephaniah chapter 3. Just sit tight for now and let me pray. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your scriptures. And as we try to plod our way through this very difficult book, this very convicting book, we thank you for your word through Zephaniah. Thank you that you only call us to, to simply come, to gather to you in humility and repentance and seek your ways. Father, I pray that you would gather those who are yet to come into this salvation that you offer through humble repentance. For those of us who you have gathered to yourself, Father, I, I thank you for your mercy, for your wondrous mercy that has opened up salvation in this way and as we know through the Lord Jesus. The cross convicts us, just like Zephaniah's words convict us, Lord, that we are sinners, but that you do save. So it's in Jesus' name that we give you our thanks and our praise, world without end. Amen.